Hi, this is Welcome to the End Times from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and demon with no respect for the rules of the road, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm researcher and angel who also worships books, Dr. Kelly Jones. And we are here today to talk about Good Omens, the Wednesday chapter in the paperback. That's pages 65 to 113. We're just a couple of supernatural entities, and we were just wondering if you might help us with the whereabouts of the notorious son of Satan. It's time to stop Armageddon. All right, y'all, let's open with a quick summary here. Today's reading opens with Warlock's 11th birthday party, where Aziraphale's attempts at magic tricks fail to entertain the kids, but his real magic saves them from gunshots when Warlock gets a hold of one of his guard's pistols. Crowley and Aziraphale worry that something is seriously wrong when the Hellhound fails to appear. Meanwhile, the Hellhound, who's much better at identifying the real Antichrist than Crowley or Aziraphale, shows up at Adam's 11th birthday in Tadfield. Adam names it Dog, and the naming transforms the Hellhound from murderous beast to lovable pup. Crowley figures out that there had been some baby-swapping shenanigans 11 years ago at the hospital, and he and his Aerofell set off in the Bentley to find the real Antichrist. They decide to revisit the hospital where Warlock and Adam were born, and on the way there, they run into Anthema Device, who's grown up to be a witch. Ananthema accidentally leaves Agnes Nutter's prophecy book in the Bentley, and Aziraphale is thrilled to find it and to start reading. Crowley and Aziraphale return to the hospital in Lower Tadfield, only to discover that it had burned down and been rebuilt as a corporate training center, now run by ex-sister Mary Loquacious, who can't tell them anything about the Antichrist. Crowley thinks that the Antichrist is protected by a shielding sort of force that would make him undetectable to supernatural beings, so they each agree to call in their human network of contacts to find the child. Humans are good at finding other humans, after all, and the Antichrist seems to be at least partly human. And this chapter ends with Scarlet, a.k.a. Red, a.k.a. War, receiving a sword that seems to call her into action as a horseman of the apocalypse. Doomsday should be any day now. All right, so Lonnie. Yes. We start out with Warlock's birthday party. Right. <laughs> just a fine, normal, totally normal yeah, birthday party of normalness. Totally normal birthday <laughs> right. party with like secret service agents or something. Well, it's fine as a diplomat, so I guess, but they're really I bad guess. at it if a kid can get a they're... hold of their gun. Yeah, there seems to be some essential training missing there. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I like that we get this compare and contrast between Warlock's birthday and Adam's birthday mm-hmm. with the weather. Because mm-hmm. this section opens with, it was a hot, fume-filled August day in central London. Warlock's 11th birthday was very well attended. Yeah. <laughs> like, hot and fume-filled kind of sounds like hell to me. And they go to the weather a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been opening almost every new scene with some kind of weather cue, although they just open this segment with that and the rest of the segment. I don't think we have any more weather cues, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I love that, like, there's all these people, you know, caterers, and there was going to be other yeah. entertainment that... Crowley canceled, <laughs> but the <laughs> the procession of all those vans was led by a vintage Bentley, and I yes. just, Aww. I love it. I and know. then 
poor Aziraphale decides to put on a magic show. And I'm like, oh, honey, that is not a good look for you. Like, Oh, but it's so cute, though. Aziraphale has my heart. He's I know. so sweet. It's so sweet. And I love that he, they kind of give us a hint here of the power that he actually has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But on page 67, it says he never applied what might be called his intrinsic powers to the practice of sleight of hand conjuring, which was a major drawback. He was beginning to wish that he continued practicing. (laughs) There's something about an angel going to learn magic tricks. Yes. When he's actually, you know, capable of like all this real magic. It's so delightful. And that he like, it's, it's, it has this sense of integrity to it. Like, no, I'm not going to use my powers. I'm going to legit do sleight of hand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so cute. It's so cute. And then when the, you know, magic show goes very, very, very badly, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that, you know, behind the buffet, Crowley, who's like dressed as a waiter, said he cringed with contact embarrassment. Oh, my God. Okay. Is that empathy? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what that is. And Crowley, like, I love this whole kind of study in... Good and evil, when they're two sides of a, you know, of this, like, conflict box, you know, Mm -hmm. really don't mean anything. They're just two sides. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just two baseball teams. It's two football teams. Like, that's all it is. (laughs) That's the difference, you know. Um, And it's so, it's so funny because, um, you know, Crowley commonly behaves toward the good. We don't see Aziraphale leaning toward the evil, Really, I don't think. No. Aside from, we're, we'll get a little bit more of that later when they co- compare like the people that are on both sides. Yeah, but Aziraphale himself, like, still remains pretty good, I think. But we're seeing all this like goodness in Crowley, even as he is pretending to badness. Yeah, you know? and and it's interesting because I don't think we see a lot of wickedness in Aziraphale. I mean, we see no. a little bit, but not a lot. But what we yeah. what we do see in him is a fair amount of apathy. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. really is the enemy of the good. Right. You know, it's like mm-hmm. not taking action when you should can sometimes be worse than, you know, actually. Because it's an ineffable plan. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I do think that that's interesting that there's more than like two sides to this. It's not just good and evil. Well, it's never that simple, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. And and I really found it interesting that when Aziraphale went to take those magic lessons all those years ago, mm-hmm. he called himself Mr. Fell. Yeah. F-E-L-L. And I was like, well, does he see himself as a fallen angel? Well, that's really interesting, you know, because, I mean, you look at it as a play on the the phonemes in his name and Mm -hmm. sure but we've already talked about how crowley you know didn't fall so much as saunter vaguely downwards right (laughs) you know and so has aziraphale in some way you know adopted into his identity a sense of having fallen Mm -hmm. you know i think that that's really interesting because that is a name that he chose and naming as we were going to find out hugely important very very important Mm -hmm. um yeah and and i think it's interesting too when they're describing the authors are talking about the children or like the narrator is you know describing the children in these chapters we actually don't get a lot of names Mm -hmm. um no like the kids at warlock's birthday party are awful 
Yes. I will not repeat the gay bashing that we get from a small girl with a ponytail. <laughs> um, yeah. And apparently heaven really is bad at entertainment because, oh my mm-hmm. God, you know, that goes so, <laughs> so, so wrong. But really, like bringing guns to a children's birthday party? Well, bring, bring unsecured guns. I mean, if you have to have, like, he's a politician. There has to be security. Fine, but security should be outside the party space. Yeah. They shouldn't be near the children. The children should not be able to get a hold of your gun. No. You know, and as we know, you know, Warlock is just a kid. Mm-hmm. He's not He's not even super evil. You no, know? he's not, but we... we... I think we see some kind of disturbing character traits here that his yeah. instinct was to, you know, grab that pistol and to and fire. Yeah. Yes. Like it, it's, that is not a good kid. No, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Aziraphale, and I, I just, I love the, the contrast here. You know, he's failing at these magic parlor tricks, mm-hmm. but in that split second, he turns all the guns into water pistols. Right. So he's doing this life-saving magic mm-hmm. that no one is actually going to realize, you know, that he's done. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, did he save these kids from like a tragic birthday shooting? Like, was that one of the purposes that he was there, you know, even if he didn't know it, yeah. to do this good? Or would that only have happened because he was there? Right. And he shouldn't have been. So he disrupted everything and then he had to fix right. the consequences of his disruption because he's not supposed to be there. Right. You know, and Crowley's not supposed to be there. Right. Yeah. But, he, you know, he still couldn't help, but it ended up being a good thing. But mm-hmm. that disruption wouldn't have happened if he wasn't there in the first place. It was just really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the hellhound is missing. So Crowley and Aziraphale figure out this this kid is not is the not Antichrist. Like, and I love that Crowley calls hell and he's like, so did y'all send up the hellhound? You know, just, <laughs> might it have been a gerbil? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we sent it 10 minutes ago. And he's like, oh, yeah, I see it. Okay. Oh, everything's, no, right fine. everything's fine. Everything's fine. That's great. <laughs> And Crowley, for being such an evil guy, is not a good liar. No, he's really not. Yeah. Like, he's really, really not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that he's like, to the Bentley Mobile, let's go. We've got right. to find this kid. <laughs> well, what I find so interesting, though, about Warlock is that he is a, a truly a rotten kid, right? I mean, he's a oh, rotten yeah. kid. Yeah. You know, he is more evil than it. But... He is actually human and mundane. And Mm -hmm. that seems to like, I mean, we have a theme here that we're going to see, you know, talked about a lot, which is that Crowley didn't really need to do anything because humans are terrible. And, you know, but he also acknowledges also wonderful. Yeah. And uh, and that's kind of of interesting that we have Aziraphale and Crowley who are essentially obsolete. Mm-hmm. Like there's no there's no real use for them because humans will do all of the things that both of them are fighting for on their own. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and Warlock is a bad seed. <laughs> bad seed, not a good kid. And okay, so I'm trying to like I always get confused by this, but mm-hmm. let's just All right. 
So the Youngs had a baby. Yes. The Diplomat had a baby. Yes. And then there was the Antichrist. Correct. So the Antichrist is with the Youngs. Yes. And this baby is the young child. Correct. So this is, Warlock is the child they would have had or yes. that they gave birth to biologically. Yes. And he's terrible. He seems and to meanwhile, be. At this moment, we don't know what happened to the diplomat's actual son. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's confusing kind of keeping track of, you know, they're talking about the, the shell game. And it is kind of a shell game because I was like, wait, which baby is mm-hmm. which? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And it's a really interesting question of like, mm-hmm. are you born to certain personality traits, you know? Mm-hmm. Or is it just environment in the way that you're raised? Because when they switch in the next, you know, little section to Adam's birthday mm-hmm. party. Yeah. It opens with, it was a hot, silent August day far from central London. Mm-hmm. You know, and we get this kind of simplistic setting, you know, yeah. that just kind of speaks to a more simple childhood. Right, right. And without the influence, because the actual direct influence um, of Crowley and Aziraphale, you know, was was with Warlock. Right. You right. know, and, like yeah. Aziraphale was trying to have a good influence on him and Crowley mm-hmm. was, you know, allowing the negative influence to be there because it's kind of his job. Yep. Um, yeah. So it's it's kind of interesting that the kid that got messed with as far as being pulled between these two extremes and also being given permission you know, from the nanny, mm-hmm. you know, and later from the tutor to to be evil. Right. You know, um, whereas Adam is just kind of out there in the middle of, you know, whatever, like a very natural experiment. Anybody looking for data, you know, <laughs> like naturally occurring data, here you go. <laughs> well, you have your, you know, you have your control group and you have your, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, your experimental group. Um but yeah, it, and it's just it's just really interesting. And the hell hound knows exactly where to go. So apparently, right. like all the demons in hell have no clue, right? Where the Antichrist actually is. But this dog, but the hell hound knows, just yeah. knows where to show up. Um, mm-hmm. And Adam knows that he's getting a dog, you know. Right. And so we don't know is he psychic? Is it just this one thing that he knows is going to happen? Instinct, you know, of some sort, I guess. Yeah, yeah. but he's completely sure that this is going to mm-hmm. happen, you know, and as he starts to describe the dog he wants, <laughs> you know, the style oh now morphs. And I, I just love, love it. I love it. You know. Oh, my God. It's so adorable. I love this whole thing. Unheard by those within, there was a tiny clap of thunder on the lip of the quarry. It might have been caused by the sudden rushing of air into the vacuum caused by a very large dog becoming, for example, a small dog. The tiny popping noise that followed might have been caused by one ear turning itself inside out. (laughs) I love that little detail. I love that so much. It's so great. And then, you know, the dog is listening to Adam's voice this whole time. Like, he's already tuned in. And Adam's friend asks, you know, what he's going to name the dog. And on page 75, it says, the hound waited. This was the moment, the naming. This would give it its purpose, its function, its identity. And Adam's like, yeah, I'm going to call it dog. (laughs) So then it becomes the very essence of dog, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, I mean, this sweet kind of loving, you know, wants to wag its tail. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and it says, you know, deep in its diabolical canine brain, it knew that something was wrong, but it was nothing if not obedient. And its great sudden love of its master overcame all misgivings. And I kind of love that the first thing we see Adam influence, like the first time we see him warp reality is, yeah. is with love. Is with love and that the dog feels that love mm-hmm. and then we have you know later we're gonna come on this where Aziraphale feels that love right and it is I mean essentially I think the thesis is love is the only good right Right. The only real, actual, legitimate good. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the very first thing we see from this kid, from this Antichrist, mm-hmm. is transforming a hellhound yes. you know, into this lovable pet who's filled with love for him. Yeah. And I just, I found that really intriguing. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's really great. I love it. All right. And with that, a message from our sponsor. This episode of Welcome to the End Times is brought to you by Hellhounds.com. Hellhounds.com provides you with your own specialized canine demon born to do your bidding no matter what. Even if your bidding is that it be, you know, cute. (laughs) I mean, you could have it rip the throat out of your enemies, leave toxic piles of poo outside of your ex's front door, or at the very least, fart on the subway. (laughs) Evil has variety is what I'm saying. There are shades of evil. And we are good with all of them because you've got a hellhound. Freaking use it. Or, you know, you could make it like fetch stuff, I guess. (laughs) Run around chasing its tail. Give up its warm spot on the couch to a bullying cat a quarter of its size. You know, whatever. (laughs) Go to hellhounds.com and use the code. Sure, that'll work, I guess, to get your discount today. Or you could choose to take the couple of bucks you might spend on ordering a specialized hound from hell only to play that disappearing behind the blanket game, which is a waste. What a waste. The dog is evil and bound to your bidding. Do people not understand? (laughs) Lonnie. Fine. Whatever. If you're not going to do it right, then just take that money and give it directly to Chipperish Media so that we can keep making the great podcasts you love, like Still Pretty about Buffy, Still Dead about Angel the Series, Listen Up A-Holes about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Orgasm about Explosive Inspiration, How Story Works about How Story Works, Metaphors Be With You about Star Wars. Patreon supporters also get the patron-exclusive podcast Two Hosts Minimum, where Chipperish hosts mix and match to talk about other stories not on the regular Chipperish late such as kelly and joshua unruh talking about all-star superman or me and rob hyrett talking about Shaun of the dead visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more but i'm just saying that if you're gonna order hound from hell fucking use the hound from hell <laughs> it's okay honey it's like those people who buy the world's best wines and they never drink them i mean what the hell are you waiting for i know i know baby you feel better now yeah i guess <laughs> Okay, so Crowley and Aziraphale are in the car going back to to Lower Tadfield, (laughs) and they kind of get into this philosophical discussion, right? Because they're Mm -hmm. wondering which side messed up the baby swap. Yeah. Um, and, and basically Crowley realizes, oh, there was nobody in that hospital except our people. And <laughs> he went on this, this kind of tear about Satanist. And I really got 
intrigued by this whole passage. This is from pages 76 to 77. Mm -hmm. But it said, there were people who called themselves Satanists who made Crowley squirm. It wasn't just the things they did. It was the way they blamed it all on hell. They'd come up with some stomach-churning idea that no (laughs) demon could have thought of in a thousand years. Some dark and mindless unpleasantness that only a fully functioning human brain could conceive. And then shout, the devil made me do it and get the sympathy of the court. When the whole point was that the devil hardly ever made anyone do anything. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to. That was what some humans found hard to understand. Hell wasn't a major reservoir of evil, in Crowley's opinion, any more than heaven was a fountain of goodness. They were just sides in the great cosmic chess game, where you found the real McCoy, the real grace, and the real heart-stopping evil was right inside the human mind. Right, and it's that last bit. Hell wasn't a major reservoir of evil, any more than heaven was a fountain of goodness. That is like... I think the central thesis of this whole thing, you know, there's all this stuff going on about the end of the world and Armageddon and evil winning over good or good versus evil, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. It is all like, I love where he says the real grace and the real heart stopping evil was right inside the human mind. And that is essentially what it comes down to. I mean, over on still dead, right? The Mm -hmm. angel podcast, we, we always have this talk about, you know, if the soul is supposed to be the source of goodness, you know, in, in people and demons and whatever, then, you know, why are people with souls so evil? You yeah. know, and I think that what it comes down to, and one of the things that we talk about a lot in this book is free will. Like Aziraphale and Crowley claim not to have free will, although they clearly behave that they have free will. Yeah. Um, But that it is truly free will and the ability to choose. You know, when people make a choice, it's the choices that they make that matter. What people say does not matter. And I realize I say this is somebody who talks for a living. (laughs) What people do is what matters. And it's the choices that you make that matter. And that's essentially what it comes down to is that Crowley is realizing that it doesn't like he doesn't have to do anything. He can just screw up a highway, you know, Mm -hmm. or a phone system for an afternoon. And then there you go. Everybody's, you know, everybody goes to their, their natural inclination anyway, which is toward good or toward evil. And, um, and I find that really interesting. The, because it always comes down to choices, yeah. Narrative always comes down to choices. Narrative is only powerful when people are making choices. And here we have, you know, Azurfel and Crowley making active choices, despite the fact that they both claim they don't have free will. And that goodness and evil can only come out of choices. But then we have this sense of love mm-hmm. thrown in there. And that's what kind of like throws me because I don't think I don't think that love is a choice Hmm. but it is always to the good right I I, real genuine love I think so I think Mm -hmm. love is always to the good so here's the question this raises for me yeah so if there are two philosophical supernatural sides yes right of heaven and hell of good and evil and then there's the human being who has a soul which yeah. speaks to some continuing essential otherness, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Just beyond beyond the body, beyond the mind. Um, and this quote 
you know, from from Crowley about real grace and real heart stopping evil was yeah. found inside the human mind, not the right. human heart. Yes, which that I threw also me thought, too. yeah, is really really interesting. So then it comes down to free will and choice. Mm-hmm. So what drives choice? Mm-hmm. Right. If we're not inherently one thing or the other, we're yeah. not inherently good or we're not inherently evil, mm-hmm. then what drives choice? And I think that is where love comes in. So is and it love and absence of love? I think it could is be. Is that what it comes down to? I think it could be. And, Ooh, you know. that shit is deep, Joe. Right? Well, it's, <laughs> and it's one of the things that drives me so crazy on Angel is how fast right. they are. To diminish the power of love in the narrative, and yet we Mm -hmm. see that is the primary driving factor for people's choices, right? And so here you have this Antichrist, this child who is coming into the supernatural power, and the first thing he does with it Mm -hmm. is shape reality based on this love that he has for this pet that he knows is coming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the pet responds, the, the hellhound, the evil dog Right. Responds with love. Responds with love. And so maybe it's not so much nature or nurture as it is the influence of things. But I think the biggest influence really is love, which may be why, although we're seeing so much of the story from Crowley and Aziraphale's perspective, and they're, Mm -hmm. you know, running all over the place, and they're doing all this stuff to influence and to intervene, they're really not having that much of an impact. No, but it is. But this story is a love story mm-hmm. between Crowley and Aziraphale. Yeah. Like what they're actually doing is, I mean, first of all, incredibly ineffectual. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're they're failing <laughs> and everything. But also, um, it doesn't really matter. Like what it is, is the it's the love between these two people who have been together you know, since the beginning of time. And what was it we talked about last time where, you know, Crowley was like that your, your, you know, close opposite number mm-hmm. matters more than your remote allies. Right. You know, right. Um, that he's developed this relationship with Aziraphale. They both understand each other. They work together, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's kind of beautiful and it really yeah. is like, you know, we, we do this whole meditation on good versus evil and how they're not really that different. Like right. how the things that we quote unquote like called capital G good, you know, is not necessarily that different from evil. Right. But love is the only thing that has the power to take like a hellhound. Yeah. That I mean, literally was meant to do evil, was mm-hmm. born and bred to do evil and turn it good instantly. Right. Instantly. Pop, and its yeah. ear turns inside out. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's really funny too because I think even before we see Crowley and Aziraphale sort of turn into this deep friendship, which I think has yeah. been growing and growing and growing, they're both primarily motivated by their love for the world. And this gets played in yes. the narrative as like, oh, yeah, you can't get a good drink, or I want sushi, or like the music, or whatever. But really, mm-hmm. they love the world. They love the world because who makes. The sushi and the drinks and the books. Exactly. It's people. It's people. And they both really love people. And so love is (sighs) is like the primary motivating force that we're seeing, even though it's not called out that way. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so fascinating. Um, 
you know, and then there's so many little running jokes here that I just delight in. Like, I love the way Crowley drives. Right. Oh, my God. And Aziraphale <laughs> shouts out. It's like, watch out for that pedestrian. And Crowley says, it's on the street. It knows the risk it's taking. Right. <laughs> it cracks me up. I know. It's so great. It's so great. And Aziraphale says, you can't do 90 miles an hour in central London. And Crowley's like, why not? And... <laughs> And then Aziraphale, you know, keeps putting tapes in the tape player. Right. And he's asking Crowley about the song. And it's like, it's Beethoven's I Want to Be Free. You know, it's right. all Queen. And it's just. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. But then we get in the middle of all that humor. We got a quote that actually really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, on page 79, it said, it is said that the devil has all the best tunes. This is broadly mm-hmm. true. But heaven has the best choreographers. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I really started wondering, well, then what is the difference between performing music mm-hmm. and the choreography that would go into, like, a dance, right? Or the yeah. performance of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked Noelle about this because she's a dancer. So I was like, okay, for your perspective, like, why would Hill have the best musicians? But Oh, heaven- yeah, this is, uh, by the way, for anybody who oh, isn't, yeah. isn't aware, this is Noelle LaCroix, who is part of the Chipperish Media Group. And uh, she does the Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast with me. Still pretty. She's my co-host. So I'm sorry. Go yes, ahead. I just want to no, make sure. No, in case anybody's listening to this who doesn't know who no. Noelle LaCroix is. I mean, which if everybody you're not should listening because she's to amazing. all of the Chipperish podcast, what are you doing uh, with your I life? mean, what are you doing with your time? I mean, come on. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. No, it's yes. good. But from her perspective as like a ballerina, I wanted to see what she thought of this. And she actually had a pretty profound response. Yeah, of course and she did. I, she's uh, no right. Way. I know. Right. She's mm-hmm. Fucking brilliant. God, I love her. I yeah. know. Anyway, go ahead. So she said <laughs> that if the human body was made in the image of a divine creator, mm-hmm. then dance is ultimately an expression of the capacity of the human form. Oh. And so it would make sense that the choreographers would be in heaven. It absolutely does. Right? And that's nice that they gave heaven, because so far, heaven doesn't have a whole lot to recommend. Right. I mean, heaven did not have a whole lot going for it. Yeah. (laughs) It's got the dancers, and that's not nothing. Right. Right. So I just I just thought that that was really interesting. Um, And I love that they're, you know, they're, they're hurtling down this road at night. In the middle of nowhere. And there's an anthema. And so it's been 11 years, right? And the last time we saw her, she was eight and a half. Mm -hmm. So now she's 19. Mm -hmm. Working on witchcrafts, road surveying out on her own at midnight. Um, And then there was this kind of snarky quote that said, most books on witchcraft will tell you that witches work naked. This is because most books on witchcraft are written by men. Hallelujah. Sing it, sister. (laughs) Absolutely. But this is followed immediately. The very next line is, the young woman's name was Anathema Device. Mm -hmm. She was not astonishingly beautiful. And here's the thing. I mean... It's okay, because, like, when they describe other women, when they describe, you know, Sister Mary Loquacious, when they talk about, like, they don't go to this. But this is a thing that, that people go to when describing specifically female characters all the time. Like, the first thing is, what does she look like? Is yep. she sexy? Is she beautiful? Yep. And you wonder why women are fucked up. Right. You know, like, right? it, it seems to be, like, the most important thing that a woman can be, is she or is she not beautiful yeah and it just 
drives me crazy. And I appreciate that they didn't do it with all the other female characters, but the major female character that they have, they do it. They do yeah. it a little bit with Red when they introduce Red in, um, oh, yeah. in the previous reading. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I just want to put it out there that the first go to when talking about a female character does not have to be, is she or is she not beautiful? No. That and we don't not do that to the thing. men. Like, is nope. Crowley devastatingly handsome? Is, we don't right. know. No. You know? Well, no. I mean, he is because he's David Tennant. But... Well, I mean, in the TV show. I mean, hell. In the TV show. Oh, yeah. I mean. <laughs> um, but yeah, but this happens in books all the time. And it happens not just with male writers. Right. So I was mm-hmm. thinking about this. Um, the first line of Gone with the Wind mm-hmm. by Margaret Mitchell has always stuck with me. Yeah. Especially considering the actress that they cast in the movie, who is one of the most beautiful women. Vivian Lee, Right. Yeah. Whoever walked the planet. But the opening line of Gone with the Wind is Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom realized it when caught by her charm as the Tarleton twins were. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, like, really? Can we just not? And do this, this is the thing. We do this when we describe women, and it's so knee jerk. Yeah. You know? And I mean, this is the thing. Like, women do it too, because this is what our culture does. Right. Our culture says, first and foremost, the thing that matters is, are you beautiful? Mm-hmm. And if you aren't, and you can accept that, and you're good with it, there's a certain freedom that comes with that because you're not competing in that space anymore. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. But um, but it just, it drives me crazy how ingrained this is. And again, like, let me just take a moment to say terroir, which is a French concept for wine. What is in the ground gets in the grapes, gets in the soil. Same thing with storytelling. I am not saying that Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman are sexist pigs. I am not saying that. I am saying that this is a product of the environment in which we all live. Yep. You know, in which we all write for those of us who are writers. Mm -hmm. And it gets into the ways in which we think about and talk about women. And it's okay to like describe how a character looks or Mm -hmm. to like talk about how they look. And I think with Red, because of what she is, because of, you know, how she functions, because of like her being beautiful may actually be relevant to her ability to go into any place and suddenly make everybody want to shoot each other up for war or whatever. I mean, if that's relevant to what that character does, you know, then okay, fine. But we use it so universally and and the first thing that we talk about with women, and if you look at Scarlett O'Hara, you know, I mean, that's a huge, like, iconic female character. And that the first thing yep. used to describe her is she was not beautiful. Yeah. Like, yeah. that is yeah. literally the first thing, the most important mm-hmm. thing that a woman can be is beautiful. And then after that, we'll consider the other things that she is, which will make up for her not being beautiful if she's not. Right. But it has to make up for it. Yeah. Yeah. As though that's some kind of failing in a woman because she is not, first of all, beautiful according to the standards of the time, which change. Right. You know, from time to time, which change throughout the eras about what is beautiful and what is not. It's completely different from different places and time. Absolutely. Um, 
But yeah, it pisses me off and it just kind of annoyed me there. And I'm not saying that the writers are sexist assholes. That's not the point. The point is, this is in our culture and we need to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I like where they went in their description of Anathema after yeah, that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. on, on page 80, it said any prowling maniac would have had more than his <laughs> share of work cut out if he had costed yes. Anathema de- <laughs> device. She yes. was a witch after all. And precisely because she was a witch and therefore sensible, she put little faith in protective amulets and spells. She saved it for the foot-long bread knife she kept in her belt. (laughs) I love her. I love that. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I think she's And so I great. love this too. I love this moment. And again, like this is, I mean, okay, everybody who's ever heard me talk about anything knows that I love the love stories between a woman and her work. Yeah. And I mean, I love stories between anybody and their work, but specifically women and their work, mm-hmm. you know? And when she has this line, she smiled, not because anything was particularly amusing, but because a tricky job had been done well. And I was like, I see you, Anathema. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I see. I see you. I feel that. Yes, absolutely. And I I loved that little line, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, Yeah, it was great. And then as Crowley and Aziraphale, you know, they're they're getting close to the spot where Anathema is. Mm -hmm. And Aziraphale here starts to feel this strong sense of love you know that adam has been i guess what they would call warping reality Mm -hmm. through his love for lower tadfield like yeah and aziraphale can actually feel it and crowley can't right so i thought this was very very interesting when we talk about like the essential difference Mm -hmm. between an angel and a demon that for all of Crowley's humanity, he can't feel this love that Aziraphale mm-hmm. can feel, yeah. you know, and Aziraphale tells him there seems to be this great sense of love. I can't put it any better than that, especially to you. Right. Because it's like Aziraphale knows that this is something Crowley can't sense, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. Um, and then, of course, Crowley hits an anthema with his car <laughs> while she's on her bike, you know, in this lane. <laughs> and I like that we see Aziraphale's power in action mm-hmm. here because as he speaks, the thing yeah. that he says comes comes true. Right. You know, he heals her minor fractions because he tells her that she's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and I love Anathema saying to Crowley, you didn't have any lights. And Crowley's like, neither did you. Fair's fair. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and as repairs her bike, but he makes mm-hmm. it better than it was. You know, and he yeah. adds a saddlebag with a puncture repair oh. kit and he adds lights. And I know. And then when Crowley tells Aziraphale, you know, get in the car, Angel, mm-hmm. we see Anathema respond to that with oh well she had been safe all along because right. she, she just immediately accepts yeah angel he's an angel i get it right you know mm-hmm. um, right and, and because of all the stuff that he did with her bike right she now understands where that power came from right sure. and, and she's just she's just cool with it are are they in the book oh, is that how question. she knows yeah because did she know she was gonna get like i mean and that's the thing too is that we're gonna see that the book is nice and accurate, but not necessarily telling everything because some of this stuff is a surprise to Anathema. Right, 
Right. Mm-hmm. And I love that we see her working this prophecy problem. Yeah. You know, on page 85, it said the answer must be in the book somewhere. The trouble was that in order to understand the predictions, you had to be able to think like a half-crazed, highly intelligent 17th century witch with a mind like a crossword puzzle dictionary. <laughs> I know. I love that. It's so great. It's so great. Yeah. You know, and then she realizes then, that she's lost the book. I know. Yeah. I know, which is the key to everything. But mm-hmm. I also love this moment, too, where it says Anathema, who suspected she could occasionally think like Agnes, had privately decided that it was because Agnes was a bloody minded old bitch with a mean sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I love that. Like, I love her relationship to Agnes Nutter. I mm-hmm. love her relationship to the book. Yeah. But I also like that the book doesn't have everything right it doesn't have all the answers and you know we're seeing that you know despite all the powers at play that there are things that are unpredictable yeah yeah and i love it too because you have to you have to work the book Right. You can't just read it and get these simple, easy answers. You have to understand how she thinks. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to dig in and consider the time it was written and the context Mm -hmm. and, you know, puzzle these things out, which is is really where the power of reading comes from. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So I love that. Um, And then, of course, we, we get on another crazy comedy tear here right crawling Aziraphale head back to the hospital you know at the airbase in lower tadfield not realizing that hanker had burned it down Mm -hmm. um and i love that you know when they realize this is all gone badly that Aziraphale starts lecturing crowley and he's like (laughs) you see evil always contains the seeds of its own destruction and crowley's like nah for my money it was just average incompetence like (laughs) right (laughs) nothing to do with evil like you know, I'm with Crowley. I know. I'm with Crowley. It's so great. And then they get out of the yeah. car and someone shoots them. And Crowley immediately says, this was ridiculous. The last thing he needed now was to be killed. Right. <laughs> and then he's like, he was bleeding yellow. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Zerfell was bleeding blue. And I was like, wait a minute. What yeah. the hell? You know, and then, of course, I figured like, it out eventually that it's paintball guns. Right. Right. And and I love this. So there's like these people out there shooting paintball in the middle of the night. And Mary Loquacious, now Hodges, of the Chattering Order, had stayed behind after the fire to repair the manor. The manor. But yeah. she became like this business woman, you know, and she's now yes. running these team building retreats and leadership training with just a certain <laughs> flair for violence. With a little, with, with a little violence. A little violence. Not a lot of violence, know? but a little violence. But it's sure. an eight- as an ex-Satanist nun, like, that fits her. That seems appropriate. And then yes. I love this moment. So we really mm-hmm. see Crowley, like, tap into that wicked, evil side that he has because he turns all the paintball guns into real <laughs> guns, you know? And he's like, he senses these these management trainees, like, their thirst for violence. And he's like, right. as you wish, you know, done. And sure. And then he kind of shrugs at Aziraphale and he's like, the way I see it, no one has to pull the trigger. And <laughs> right. Aziraphale yes. is so mad, you know, that mm-hmm. these people are now shooting each other with real guns mm-hmm. and and Crowley says well that's just it isn't it they're doing it themselves it's what they really wanted to do I just assisted them think of mm-hmm. it as a microcosm of the universe free will for everyone ineffable right and, <laughs> yeah. and Phil, you know what he's got a point yeah and yeah. Aziraphale just glares at him 
And then Crowley's like, all right, fine. No one's actually going to get killed. They'll all have miraculous escapes. It wouldn't be any fun (laughs) otherwise. And so we see that, like, despite this immediate desire to give in to to wickedness, Crowley really isn't going to cheer with anybody getting hurt. There's performative goodness, mm-hmm. you know, which is not necessarily good. And I think there's performative evil. Yeah. Which is not necessarily evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I think Crowley has a little performative evil. Yeah. And he's like, mm-hmm. I just, I can't really help it. Like, <laughs> but, but I won't right. let them kill each other. But in the meantime, exactly. they're all right, all right around fine. shooting, you know, yes. these real bullets. And, you know, and so they go in and hypnotize Mary Hodges. Um, but all she can remember about the Antichrist was that he had lovely little toesy woesies. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that, you know, all the police are coming now because these crazy business guys are shooting the place up. And it says no one noticed them leaving. The police yeah. were too busy herding in 40 adrenaline drunk fighting mad management trainees. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. I have had to organize a number of team building activities, and I think this is right on. Like, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Yeah. And then when they're, you know, they're in the car again, they're out of luck. They don't really mm-hmm. know where to look next. And so they start wondering about how Armageddon will actually happen. You know, and Crowley wonders uh-huh. if it'll be thermonuclear extinction, and Aziraphale wonders if it'll be an asteroid strike. Um, and I love Crowley saying all higher life forms will be skived away just like that. Yeah. Nothing left but dust and fundamentalists. And fundamentalists. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a slap at fundamentalists. And you know what? Okay. Okay. I'm totally fine okay. with it. It's one of my favorite lines from the book. <laughs> it is. It's really good. But here's the thing, though. Like, so... The world's going to go out, right? We've mm-hmm. spent 11 years dealing with this Antichrist figure, right? And what, what would, how would Adam bring about thermonuclear extinction or an asteroid strike? Like, he doesn't have that kind of control. So is it just that he would be present for it? Is that, uh, how does, oh, like, no. it seems to me he... like he would be a catalyst, mm. right? Mm-mm. I don't think so. I think this is the power he will have. So, like, he doesn't have it yet because he just now turned 11. This is where he's going. So that's why, you know, when they thought the Antichrist was Warlock, like, they wanted to sway that influence over him, like, to try to stop him from coming into this power at Mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. Because apparently that is the power inherent in this child. Wow. Because if you can warp reality, you can also end it. Sure. I think. So... But no spoilers. No spoilers. (laughs) No spoilers. And then I love, so they're trying to figure out, like, how this might happen. But then Mm. they immediately stop looking at supernatural influence and they look at human ones. And so they both agree to name their side's top people, you know, who might play a part in Doomsday. And Mm -hmm. it said, Aziraphale named five political leaders. Crowley named Mm -hmm. six. Three names appeared on both lists. All right, so we have this line between good and evil, which is not clear if it exists at all. And then we go into the difference between Crowley's terrorists and Aziraphale's freedom fighters. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Crowley starts mocking Aziraphale for playing the semantics game. You know, he's like, you mean none of this cheap mass-produced murder? It's just personal service. Every bullet individually fired by a skilled craftsman. <laughs> and I just kind of wanted him to be like, artisanal terrorism. Like, <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's gentrify terrorism. Absolutely. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting how quickly and again, this is what I see in Aziraphale is not Mm -hmm. evil so much as apathy, because he's very quick to defend his side without questioning. Right. You know, Uh like he's not really going to be bothered to ask what's the difference between Yeah, a terrorist Mm -hmm. and a freedom fighter. He's just like, well, Mm -hmm. they're on our side. So if they have guns, it's fine. And I'm like, right. No, Aziraphale, not really. No. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, we start to see here that Crowley is really afraid, realizing, uh-huh. oh, shit, like there's an Antichrist on Earth and I don't know where he is. Right. Like, you had one job, Crowley. Like, you had <laughs> one had job. One job. <laughs> and on page 101, it says, when those below found out that he personally had lost the Antichrist, they probably dig out all those reports he'd done on the Spanish Inquisition and try them out on him one at a time, and then all together. <laughs> they go, poor Crowley. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's convinced that the Antichrist is shielded somehow. Right. From, they can't find him. Yeah. But I'm like, okay, They can't feel why? him. Mm-hmm. Like, why? Mm-hmm. You know, is it yeah. is it because he's half human? Is he half human? We I don't, don't know. We don't really know. Um, I mean, he came from, like... He came from down below. Right. The demons brought him, but he was a baby. Yeah. So did they steal another baby and like have the Antichrist soul put inside of that baby? Or like, where did that baby exactly come from? I don't know. I don't. I mean, yeah. he, he's, they said it's Satan's child. Yeah. So you're Satan's you're child. like, okay. Spawn of Satan. What, yeah. you know, what's the deal? Um but it is interesting to kind of see, you know, so Crowley is in this, I think the first time we've seen him really feel afraid, you know, and he, he drops his right. off at the bookshop and his finds the book, you know, in the Bentley and he mm-hmm. talks about returning it to Anathema until he reads the title page. Right. And then it's like, oh, no, we see mm-hmm. Aziraphale light up like, oh, my God, I have I this. I know. I love But that. he he doesn't tell Crowley about the book's mm-hmm. contents. And when he yeah. leaves, you know, it says that Crowley is feeling very much alone. I know. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that when he's not with Aziraphale. He feels alone, and I mean, Azurfell is his platonic life partner. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, he's lonely without him. And again, I love the love story mm-hmm. here. Yep, and I and I think that like we see Crowley reaching out a little more than we see Azurfell mm-hmm. because Azurfell mm-hmm. is willing to work with him, but he doesn't trust him enough to tell him. Yeah, you know about mm-hmm. the book. But right. I love Azurfell's reverence for this book. I know. I love this moment where it says, Aziraphale turned a few of the yellowed pages. Tiny bibliophilic bells rang in the back of his mind. (laughs) And I'm like, tiny bibliophilic bells. Uh I love that. I love it, too. And he he knows what it is. You know, it says Mm -hmm. he'd never seen a copy before, but he'd heard about it. Everyone in the trade, which considering it was a highly specialized trade, meant about a dozen people had heard of it. (laughs) Right. But then, you know, he's he's going to read this, you know, and be very, very Mm -hmm. careful. And like he makes cocoa, which is, first of all, adorable. I know. An angel alone is drinking cocoa. Mm -hmm. And then he just leaves it forgotten. Yeah. But it says his hands hardly shook as he laid it down on a bench, pulled on a pair of surgical rubber gloves and opened it reverentially. Aziraphale was an angel, but he also worshipped 
books. Oh, I love that. I love it. I love it so much. I know. And then we go back to war. <laughs> so we see the, you know, we see war, a.k.a. Yeah. Scarlet, now back as Red, mm-hmm. now a war correspondent who always somehow manages to arrive, in fact, before war the breaks war out. Breaks out and, and, and then again, we do the same thing. We're describing yeah. her, phys- you know, her physicality. Mm-hmm. And on page 109, it says, Red looked to be the kind of woman who, if she took a holiday on any island smaller than Australia, would be doing so because she was friends with the men who owned it. Right. And I'm like, okay, so what the fuck? Women can't own islands? Like, <laughs> really? Yeah. I'm sorry. Just Hello, the possession. Patriarchy. Like, right? I have yeah. a vagina, therefore I can't own property. Oh, no, wait, that was a therefore thing. Therefore, I have to access right. everything through, through men. Through a man? Oh. Through my beauty oh, and through the God. men who respond to it. Yep. Yeah. So, like, if you wonder why a character of female presentation is the one that brings about war and is filled with violence, this is why, y'all, because this uh, uh, shit gets old. Uh, uh, That's it why. It does get old. Right? Like, seriously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, and in the middle of this battle, you know, kind of raging around her, a messenger arrives with a sword. Mm-hmm. And and it says, like, the couple hidden under the table missed the significance of that sword because it meant that there would not be any next year. It rather lowered the odds on there being any next week to speak of. Right. And this isn't the flaming sword. No, no. That Aziraphale gave to Adam and Eve. This is something else. Yeah, this is something else. So it seems mm-hmm. to be some kind of symbol or signal, yeah. you know, just for her. That, okay, you know, all this work you've been doing in this human form, mm-hmm. okay, you're done. And yeah. and that sword arrives for her the same day that the hellhound arrives for Adam. And the same day, if you think about it, that the book arrived for Aziraphale. Yeah. So it's really, really interesting to yeah. see these, these symbolic things, you know, or these sources mm-hmm. of knowledge and power kind of arriving to the people who are meant to hold them mm-hmm. during the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was an it yeah. was an interesting section of the reading. I think. Yeah, it really was. It's kind of fun. It was a lot of, of good stuff there. Yeah. So, what's your favorite part? Um, I mean, aside from the love story between Crowley and Aziraphale, which will be my favorite part every week, <laughs> I think the Hellhound turning into a dog with his little ear turned inside out. <laughs> I kind of love that. I love that about you. So cute. So cute. What about you? What's your favorite part? I love Crowley and Aziraphale working together. Like, let's jump in this car and track down this kid. And (laughs) asking each other about sanctuary and asking Mm -hmm. each other how Armageddon will, you know, actually happen. And I'm sorry, but Crowley's saying that there will be nothing left but dust and fundamentalists. Like, I. Always going to delight me. So, we also want to hear about your favorite part and your thoughts on this reading. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie at Lonnie Danrich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag ChipperEndTimes. Welcome to the End Times and everything Chipperish Media produces is made free and ad-free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to destroy the world, leaving nothing but dust and fundamentalists. Visit <laughs> patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. 
You can also show your support for Welcome to the End Times by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review or telling your friends about the show and Shippers Media or thinking like a half-crazed, highly intelligent 17th century witch with a mind like a crossword puzzle dictionary. (laughs) We'll be back next time with Thursday, paperback pages 115 to 137 and Friday, paperback pages 139 to 172. Until then, I suppose your people wouldn't consider giving me asylum. Ah, I was going to ask you the same thing. <laughs> I can just see the chipperish hellhound being sick on <laughs> bad story. What would, what, would, what would the chipperish hellhound be named? What would Ooh. we even name it? It would have to be able to do evil, though. I have some evil I'd like to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. I, I need vengeance. Yeah, I think collectively. Ooh. A hellhound vengeance demon? A hellhound vengeance demon. That's what I need. Yeah. So Could we can like that. send it send it on, you know, missions of vengeance. And then when it gets done with that, we'd be like, oh, prologue. Get him. Get him, boy. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, wait, wait. Are you saying that the chipperish hellhound would be named prologue? Because that shit cuts <laughs> deep, <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> I hate what you hate, baby. Hate what you hate. (laughs) (laughs) And I hate fucking prologue. So, yeah, that seems about right. It's a character plot vending machine. Get it. Get it. Now I want to go get a dog and name it prologue. (laughs) I'm going to be like, oh, I'm so sorry, puppy. Like, (laughs) (laughs) prologue, you piece of shit. God damn it, prologue. You're useless and extraneous, and we don't need you, but we love you anyway. It would be the cutest hellhound ever. It would be the cutest hellhound ever. It would be adorable.